Good evening. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce Nick, Nick Shea, who's very much a, a local person. Uh, he, did, he did a master's at Birkbeck uh, after a legal career, and then he did a PhD at King's. And then he went back to Oxford, unfortunately, for some years, but now he's uh, my colleague at King's again, which is very good. And uh, tonight he's going to tell us about exploited isomorphism and structural representation. So thank you very much, David. I'm going to stand up so you can hear me. There's a lot of moaning of wind at the windows, and my voice might drop. So maybe someone like Tom could wave if I'm becoming inaudible or not out-competing the moaning. Uh, so thank you very much for the invitation. It's, it's a real pleasure to be giving a talk at the Aristotelian Society. As David said, uh, I started not only with a master's at Birkbeck, but before then with a conversion course at Birkbeck. So my very first baby steps in philosophy were just around the corner, and some of the very first philosophy talks I came to were here at the Aristotelian Society. So it's a real privilege to be back giving one of those talks. And it's also nice to see so many people here. I know we're up against another philosophy of mind talk not a million miles away, so it's nice that some of you are loyal to the Aristotelian Society. So I'm going to give a uh, talk where the broad topic is the nature of representation. I'm interested in uh, representational content and what gives representations the contents they do, they have. And my focus for today is whether uh, isomorphism or structures corresponding to structures could be part of the basis of representational content. So just in the very intuitive way that a map has a spatial structure and that spatial structure corresponds to the spatial structure of things out there in the world. And that fact, that correspondence, seems to be important to the way that a map represents. Now, as a lot of you I know will know, uh, when people who are trying to give a naturalistic account of uh, representational content have appealed to that fact, the existence of structures mapping structures, or have appealed to isomorphism, they've come up against the problem that isomorphisms seem to be just too plural, too cheap. There are too many isomorphisms between putative sets of representations and things in the world for the isomorphism, the existence, the bare existence of the isomorphism to be doing the job of determining or fixing content. And I'm going to come back to that problem. But I want to also point out what I think is a related problem, which is that in many of the cases where it looks like there's an isomorphism over a set of representations that's important, that's uh, substantive in doing some work, actually that set of relations between representations isn't being made use of by the system that makes use of the representations. So it's idle. It's um, causally idle. And I think noticing that gives us some resources going back to go back to the problem of the liberality of isomorphisms. Because if we constrain the class that can plausibly play a role in a theory of content to those that are exploitable in the sense that um, I'm going to come to, then I think that does give us a plausible candidate to use in a theory of content. So what I want to do is uh, give some case studies, some examples of isomorphisms being exploited and not, in order to motivate uh, a definition of what it is for an isomorphism to be exploitable, and then to argue that there are some real cases where the existence of an exploitable isomorphism could be playing a role in determining content, in making it the case that a representation has the content it does. So let me just give you a little background to the way that I'm thinking of representational content. So. Uh, the problem of understanding the nature of content seems to be a big, diverse, diffuse problem, and my approach is to tackle it from the bottom, as it were, with relatively simple systems, to try and understand the nature of content in systems where uh, what's going on is relatively clear, and so there's some resource clear resources for us to theorize 
about. And that means starting with things that are much more simple than human beliefs and desires, with the hope that getting a grasp on what simple kinds of representation is like will give us some resources that are helpful for thinking about the nature of beliefs and desires. But that means the representations that are my target here uh, aren't conscious, uh, and they're not at the personal level. They're not the kind of things which reason-giving relations subsist between. Uh, and nor is it built in that they have uh, any particular constituent structure. In particular, it's not built in that they should have the kind of structures that language has, subject predicate structure or anything like that. Okay, so they're relatively simple representations I've got in my sites. Uh, another bit of background is that I'm open to pluralism about content determination. So uh, I think it may turn out that the metaphysics of content could be different for different kinds of systems. So there could be some kind of systems where the right account of why there are correctness conditions for its representations goes one way, whereas for other systems, the right account of correctness conditions or satisfaction conditions could go a different way without there being a single overarching theory uh, which points to a property that's shared by all such systems but also plausibly individuative of content. So in the context of that pluralism, it could be that uh, Isomorphism or structural correspondence plays a role in determining content for some kinds of representations, but not others. And that's the idea that I'm exploring. And there's a, another bit of my uh, approach that might be useful to mention. So I think for a lot of simple systems, the way representations are working is that there's a set of representations that can be tokened, and uh, which representation is tokened makes a difference to behavior or makes a difference to some computations and then to behavior. So uh, in the simplest classes of cases, there's a set of representations and there's some consumer system that makes use of those representations and conditions its behavior on those representations. And I think that idea, what Peter Godfrey Smith has called the basic representationist model, uh, implicitly subscribes to the idea that the representations have got something useful about them in order for the, it to be useful for the consumer system to condition its behavior on the representations. The thing that Peter Godfrey Smith suggests is that uh, in this class of cases, the representations will bear some exploitable relation to things in the world. Okay. So I don't need to uh, presuppose that that's true for what comes, but it's part of my thinking that might make uh, the way that I'm tackling this, this clearer. So a set of representations, they somehow uh, stand in an exploitable relation to things in the world that can be made use of when you condition computations or behavior on those representations. Now, a very simple exploitable relation is correlating. Right? So if you've got an internal correlate of some uh, worldly state of affairs, then that's something that behavior could be usefully conditioned on. And I've argued in other places that in some simple systems, those correlations are part of what makes it the case that the representations have the content they do. So for today, I want to look at something that's plausibly different from correlation, the idea of structure matching structure as being a different exploitable relation, um, and that that might be part of uh, a theory of content for other kinds of cases. Let me just also at the outset say briefly what I'm not focusing on or not particularly interested in, in for today. So the question isn't whether there are analog representations as opposed to digital representations, and nor is it uh, whether there are representations that obey what Photo calls the picture principle, that are picture-like in the sense that parts of the representation represent parts of the thing that's represented, although that may be true of some of these cases. Um, nor am I uh, interested in uh, presupposing that these representations need be informationally rich. So something that Jackson and uh, Brad and Mitchell have argued is that there is a class of representations that are necessarily informationally rich in the sense that they can only represent some things by representing lots of things. And that's plausible, plausibly something that might be true of cartographic maps, right? A map represents a whole lot of things at once. 
in quite a different way from a sentence that um, represents just one fact when you write it down. But I'm not presupposing that should be true of structural representations. And as I said, I'm not presupposing that they have subject predicate structure. So there is, a, I think, an interesting question about structural correspondence, which is whether subject predicate structure is some kind of structural correspondence to something about the world. But I'm not going to get into that question. So the plan is to give a couple of case studies that uh, highlight the contrast between exploited and unexploited isomorphisms and use that to motivate a definition of what it is to have an exploitable isomorphism between one set of things and another. But first off, I should say a bit more about this liberality. Um, so I've just said that people found that isomorphisms are too liberal to be a uh, plausible foundation for content. Let me just um, uh, paint that picture, although I know it'll be familiar to lots of people. So the basic idea of an isomorphism as a mathematical uh, entity is just a function that's invertible, a function from one set of things to another that has an inverse that's a well-defined function. So the one on the left there I, that's an isomorphism. Every element in uh, the set on the left, the, the lowercase letters, maps to an element in the set on the right to the uppercase letters. And of course, if there's that isomorphism, then there's a whole load of other ones, and I've shown you two others there. It's just a one-one mapping between entities. In the representational cases, people are interested in something slightly stronger, not just a mapping that takes representations to things in the world, but something a mapping that preserves some structure on the representations. So, uh, for example, you might have a, a, a relational structure like this one on the things that are represented, the things on the right. Maybe that's the uh, structure of uh, being to the left of in a circle. And then some structure on the representations that corresponds to that structure. So this is just a structural correspondence between a structure on one set of things and a structure on another. So it's this kind of thing that people are uh, wondering whether that, the existence of that kind of thing could be part of the constitutive basis of content. And the problem, I guess it will already be reasonably obvious, is that uh, if there's no constraints on what relations or operations or structures are permitted amongst the representations, then this is a very liberal notion. So for example, suppose rather than the, uh, representing the structure R primed, we're interested in representing the relation S prime, a different relation between those set of entities on the right. Then. Uh, since the uh, representations match one one to the entities between which the, the relation subsists, uh, we can allow just the same mapping as we had before, and there will be a relation on the representations that corresponds. Uh, you can just define the relation by taking the inverse of the relation on the uh, items that are represented. So that may not be a very natural relation. It may not be. Um, one that the system can do anything with, but there is a relation on the representations that corresponds. Or you might think, well, that's, we, we're actually interested in constraining the kinds of representations, the kinds of relations on the representations that might be candidates. So maybe we want to represent S primed, but only with this more restricted set of, uh, this more restricted relation on the left, the one I started with. But even there, there's a lot of liberality if we're not constrained in how the mapping goes, because there's a, there is a mapping from that relation, R, to S primed, if, the, uh, if you pick one of the other isomorphisms mapping representations to things that are represented. So if you allow liberality on the mapping or on the admissible, re uh, the admissible relations on the representations, then there's a whole lot of isomorphism be between two sets of equal cardinality. 
So just the bare existence of an isomorphism doesn't look like it's a very interesting candidate uh, for playing a role in uh, a theory of representational content. Now, uh, some prominent psychologists have argued that the notion, the only notion of representation we need is the notion of the mathematical notion, the notion of isomorphism. That's something that uh, Randy Gallistel has argued. And I think what he has in mind there is that in mathematics, it's a very powerful notion, the idea of isomorphism, because the things between which the relations exist are maybe completely or at least partially uh, structurally defined. So a mathematical entity is defined by its structure, and finding another mathematical entity with exactly the same structure is a very strong result. It means you can prove things uh, in one domain just by proving them in the other domain. But if we're thinking about the existence of relations over uh, real entities, over representational vehicles, then that's a much more liberal idea. The philosopher who's done most to appeal to that idea is Cummins, Rob Cummins, in his book, Meaning and Mental Representation. And there he argues that, uh, just like Galastel, that um, the basic representational notion is the one of isomorphism. And he just accepts the liberality. He says, uh, there's just representation all over the place. Any reasonably complex structure, uh, because it's isomorphic to it, represents a whole huge plurality of things. Um, now, that's problematic if we think that the existence of isomorphism is going to play a substantive role in the theory in cutting down the candidate uh, representational contents. And indeed, he's moved away from that position. So, uh, I want to use terms such that the structural correspondence is just the existence of one of these uh, isomorphisms matching structure over the representations with structure over things in the world. But the much more restricted idea is the notion of structure, uh, structural representation. And that's when there is a structural correspondence that's also a representation. So that's the <coughs> definition I want to work with. When there's a collection of representations where a relation between the representational vehicles not just corresponds, but represents a relation between the entities they represent, then you've got a structural representation. So the question I'm asking is uh, whether there are structural representations, and if so, uh, whether the existence of a structural correspondence is part of what makes it the case that they have the content they do. And I'm going to argue that uh, the bare existence of a isomorphism is too liberal to do any useful work. But if we cut down the class to the exploitable isomorphisms, in a sense I want to bring out, then that uh, can plausibly play a content constituting role. Okay, so that's really all by way of setup and motivation. Now I want to work through a couple of case studies to contrast exploited and unexploited isomorphisms. <coughs> and the first one is an obvious place to look. It's uh, in rat navigation. Uh, it's obvious because it, since the 1970s, people have talked about rats having a cognitive map, of having a kind of representational system that works like a map. And indeed, quite a lot of the work showing that, certainly the early work, was done in London. So I just want to give you uh, not details of the data, but a taste of what um, is going on in the RAT uh, cognitive map system in order to make, make a couple of philosophical points about it. So here's the basic finding. These are pictures of how cells in a part of the RAT's brain called the hippocampus fire as it moves through a ge geographical area, through a, a kind of arena. And this is the part of the brain that in other animals is also shown to be important for navigation. It's enlarged in London taxi drivers, for example. Uh, and it, it has this very, these very interesting receptivity properties. So each of those uh, gray squares represents one neuron, one neuron in the rat hippocampus that's being recorded from. 
You can record as the rat moves around and see when it fires. And the pictures are showing uh, spatially where each of those neurons tends to fire. So this one down here tends to fire when the rat is in the bottom right-hand corner of the arena, whereas this neuron tends has a preferred location up here. And there are neurons with preferred locations that cover more or less the whole space that the rat's moving through. So when people found that, uh, they immediately declared, this is a cognitive map. Right? This is a map of space. So what I want to point out to start with is that um, there's nothing yet map-like about this phenomenon because there's no structure over this set of representations. So the putative representations are uh, individual neurons in the rat hippocampus, and they represent in virtue of their firing rate. That's how they token by firing. Um, but there's no structure over them being appealed to, being talked about. Now, it would be very useful to have these kinds of uh, cells that correlate with where you are, but the, the basic use of them would just be because they tell you where you are. So that's to say because they correlate with facts about location. So for example, uh, the rat could move around and get some experience and learn from experience, and it could learn that when it's in this part of space, if it pushes a lever, something good happens. And on the other hand, if it's in this part of space, if it pulls a chain, something good happens. And once it's done that learning, once it's associated these motor programs with these place cells, then when it comes back into the space, it can behave usefully, non-randomly. But uh, kind of um, rather obviously, that behavior doesn't depend on any structural connections between these different representations. It just depends on the fact that this cell, uh, this cell's firing correlates with being in this location, whereas this cell's firing correlates with it's being in that location. So the basic finding, the thing that people initially discovered, I don't think supports the idea of there being a cognitive map yet in the rat hippocampus. In some bits of um, the brain, neural firing happens to have a, what, what the neuroscientists call a, a topographic organization. So a really map-like organization in that nearby neurons tend to represent nearby um, places of space, and that happens, for example, in early visual cortex. But that doesn't happen in the rat hippocampus. So these are the neurons in question. Uh, they lie, lie in this layer of the hippocampus. And it's not the case that uh, near, neurons whose preferred location is nearby one another tend to lie nearby one another in this bit of the hippocampus. And this bit of the hippocampus is very uh, richly laterally interconnected. So pretty much every neuron is very interconnected with other ones close and nearby. But there is a structure over these neurons which I think is interesting and important, which is the co-activation structure. That's to say, although they're not spatially nearby each other, neurons who've got preferred uh, firing rates for nearby locations tend to make one another fire. Right? There's a, if, uh, if, if this one here prefers the top right-hand corner, then it, may, it has a disposition to make another one fire that, that prefers a nearby location. Let me just give you a hint of the evidence for that. So on the right is a recording from a whole series of these um, hippocampal place cells as the rat moves along a track, so a, a, a linear track in an arena. And the cells are just uh, organized, uh, ranked based on when they fire. And you can see as the rat moves through the arena, the firing moves between these various place cells. So they have various preferred locations. So this slope isn't yet showing you it has any structure because that's how they've been arranged uh, in, the, in the diagram. This doesn't correspond to any spatial structure in the, 
in the hippocampus. But on, on the left here is a picture of what happens when those cells fire offline, not driven by current visual and haptic input, but just uh, uh, going through their intrinsic dynamics when the rat's asleep or when the rat is not moving. Um, and it's a much less clear result, but perhaps you can see that, say, this one, the firing moves through a sequence that's roughly the same as that sequence. Uh, this one's roughly the same, too. And then these ones are the sequence in reverse. So their spontaneous offline activity shows that there's this coactivation structure, which does correspond to spatial structure. Neurons that tend to activate one another also tend to <coughs> correlate with places that are nearby in space. And just You can see why that structure would probably arise. The rat moves through space and uh, cells that fire together wire together, so there's an opportunity for that coactivation structure to be learned just by uh, ordinary Pavlovian uh, processes. But that's not yet to say that it's being used. But now I want to uh, speculate a bit and just to give you a case to, to think about. Now, there's some reasonable evidence that before a rat sets off to get to follow a new route or to get to a destination, it allows these place cells to fire offline in the way that's illustrated here. Now, the thing I want to speculate about is let's suppose that it allowed them to fire offline in a multitude of ways. So it allowed the spontaneous activity to unfold in a variety of ways. And there are a variety of routes through this arena, so the uh, tracks of spontaneous activity could follow a multitude of routes. And let's suppose further that the rat has a disposition to keep track of how long each of those temporal sequences of firing takes, and to somehow record that, and then to follow the sequence that took the least time. So it's got some target, some place that's been rewarded, or uh, it knows there's going to be food. It sits and waits and lets firing unfold spontaneously via a variety of chains, and then it sets off along the chain that took the least time to unfold. So I think that's a case where it is making use of the coactivation structure of the neurons. It's making use of it in order to calculate a shorter route or the shortest route. And that's to make use of the correspondence between the coactivation structure on the neurons and spatial structure in the world. So I think that's a case where uh, there's not just a structural correspondence, but it's being exploited for behavior. And the facts about the way that it's being exploited so that it leads to kind of useful, efficient, successful behavior for the rat um, plausibly would make it the case that it's a structural representation, that the coactivation structure is representing spatial distance between the locations. And then I think it's also plausible that that correspondence is the thing that's being used could be part of what makes it the case that it's a structural representation. Okay, so that's a, uh, a case where, in the minimal case, I think there's not an exploited isomorphism. But if we enrich the case in a way that's not, not empirically implausible, then there would be an exploited isomorphism. I say structural correspondence rather than isomorphism because a bit later I'm going to say that uh, I think we need to weaken the notion of isomorphism uh, a bit and allow a wider class of correspondence structures. So here's what I want to mean by an exploited structural correspondence. It's when there's a relation between represent representational vehicles which is used in virtue of its correspondence to a relation between the things that are being represented. So you've got a set of representations, you've got a set of things they represent, there's some relation on the set of representations, and when it's being used in virtue of its correspondence 
to the set of things represented, then that's what I'm going to call an exploited structural correspondence. Okay, so I hope the, the rat case gives you uh, at least a plausibility case for one of those, one of those exploited structural correspondences. Now I want to take another case that's been very prominent in the literature, where people have argued that uh, isomorphisms are playing a role, and argue, I think, counterintuitively that they're not. Um, and I expect to encounter a bit of resistance. So the case is the honeybee nectar dance. So it's a basic case of animal signaling. Uh, it's a case where I expect the story is probably familiar. Uh, honeybees that are foraging for nectar uh, go out, they find nectar, when they come back to the hive, they produce a waggle dance uh, that can tell other bees about where current good sources of nectar are. And of course, those vary from day to day as, uh, as uh, plants flower. And that's a, it's an example that has been used a lot in uh, the literature on naturalizing representational content because it's a case where everything's out in the open. It's relatively simple to see what's going on. So we're not thinking here that representational content depends on the bees doing any cognition or thinking about what these symbols mean. It just depends on two uh, matching sets of dispositions, dispositions of incoming bees to produce waggle dances that correlate with the location of nectar and disposition, dispositions of outgoing bees to fly distances and directions that correspond to those dances before starting their search. And the way that it works is the angle of the dance to the vertical in the hive corresponds to the direction of nectar in relation to the sun. And the number of waggles produced here corresponds inversely to how far away the nectar is. So we could look at either one of those, but just for simplicity, let's look at the, the waggles and the distance, right? So more waggles means the nectar is closer, and less waggles means the nectar is further away. And in fact, incoming bees have a disposition to produce these things that correlate, and outgoing bees have a disposition to follow them. So they, they sort of set off very high, go for the appropriate distance, and then they drop down and start a local search uh, for nectar to forage for. So let's suppose that the uh, relation is like this, that one waggle tends to be around 300 meters and so on down to five waggles at 60 meters. Then there's a nice, simple, structural correspondence here. Uh, there's a relation on the number of waggles uh, and a relation on the distances such that one relation corresponds to the other. So there's just a simple mathematical function. Um, the distance is 300 divided by the number of waggles. So that's a nice, simple thing to use. And it's so obvious that there's a relation on the waggles that corresponds to a relation on the distances that people have thought that that's important to the way that this thing represents. And I want to argue that it's not. That what's making this system represent as it does is just the correlations. It's just the way that each individual dance correlates with an individual distance. So I want to work up to make that case. So one thing is, suppose this system had evolved without a whole uh, system of different dance types, but just for one dance type. So if a bee came in and did three waggles, outgoing bees would know how far to go, but otherwise not. Otherwise, they are just um, at sea. So even that would be a useful set of dispositions to have. That would be better than chance. That would help foraging, even if there were just one of these. And in that case, it's clear that it's just the correlation between the number of waggles and the distance that would be being used. Take another case where there's a much more gruesome uh, mapping from <coughs> numbers of waggles to distances. That would also be a perfectly useful uh, system to have, provided the disposition of incoming bees to produce waggles match the dis 
the uh, dispositions of outgoing bees to go searching. Right? So if there were this kind of match, provided the incoming bees are doing one waggle when they come from 75 meters and the outgoing bees only go 75 meters before they search, then this would be a fine system to have. But it doesn't have one of these obvious and natural isomorphisms between a relation on the waggles and a relation on the, on the distances. But now, appealing to what I said earlier, of course, there is an isomorphism here. There is a, a relation on the uh, waggles that correspond to more distance. It's just a rather more gruesome relation. And it's the relation that makes uh, this one first, and then this one first, and then this one, and then this one, and so on. So uh, if we're just talking about the existence of a relation on the set of putative representations, then there's one of those here just as much as there is one here. And I want to say, in neither case is that relation being made use of. Now, there is an important difference, I think, between these two cases, uh, which means the one on the left is much more likely to evolve, which is that uh, using natural systems with relatively limited resources, um, a single mechanism can implement this <laughs> set of, uh, this, this disposition, whereas this would need, need some more complicated mechanism. So that probably makes this more evol evolvable, more easy to develop in the ontogeny of an individual bee, more robust against error and so on. And it may, also means we could say something substantive about uh, new distances that have never been um, represented before. But I think none of that amounts to the relation on the waggles being exploited here. So contrast that. Suppose, uh, now this is not, there's no evidence for this, but suppose um, consumer bees actually did some comparison between dances before deciding where, off, where to go foraging. So for example, one bee might come in and do, do two waggles, but really smell really bad and seem like it was not a good place to go foraging. And then the consumer bees would look at some other waggles and pick the one that was the biggest number away from that really bad smelling bee, right? and then forage at that distance. That would be making use of a relation between the representations. It would be comparing two waggle dances to one reference one and picking the one that was furthest. Okay, so I think it's that kind of thing that it, that's needed in order to make use of a relation between the representations. And in the basic uh, waggle dance uh, honeybee communication case, I don't think that relation is being made use of. OK, so it's, I think it's a relatively small step in these simple systems from the relation not being made use of to it's not being a structural representation. But the assumption there is uh, that at least in these simple, kind of, simple kinds of systems, uh, if a feature of the representations has no computational or behavioral effect, if it's not being uh, used to compute something and behavior is not being conditioned on it, then it's very unlikely that it's got any representational significance. So I think that's a reasonably straightforward evidential principle for these cases, in which case uh, this is not a case of structural representation. The relation which clearly exists is very salient isn't being made use of, so uh, it's just a case of correlations being made use of. Okay, so I hope that gives a contrast between the isomorphism being exploited in the rat navigation case and it not being exploited in the bee dance case, even though uh, most people have claimed that it is in this case. Now I want to turn to a more familiar example to cartographic maps just to make uh, the, the case for a different kind of structural representation and uh, to make the case that there, too, uh, the relation between representations is plausibly part of an account of what gives the representations their content. So that it's not just a case of structural representation, but it's a case where 
making use of an isomorphism is part of why it's a representation, why it's the representation that it is. So here, here's the most familiar kind of map uh, where there's a north arrow and a, a scale bar and there's a grid. And with that kind of map, if you just put one point on it, then the map already makes a claim. I guess this is making a claim about where London is, where on the globe London is. So if that's how maps work, you might um, doubt whether uh, relations between representations are constitutive of content. So I'll enrich the map a little bit. Now there are relations between representations. Uh, there's the spatial distance between these and the spatial distance between these. And surely uh, the distance between these is represented. So this map represents that Oxford is about 60 miles from London. But you might think that uh, in this case, it's not, the it's, it's not being represented in virtue of this relation. Because each place is each place has its location represented. So the underived content is just saying where York, Oxford, and London are, and then it follows from that that there are certain distances from each other. So that's for familiar maps, but I think there are other kinds of maps that are um, slightly more sparse that do bring out this point of the structure being part of what makes it the case that, um, that they represent as they do. So here's a slightly more sparse case. We drop the grid lines, and then one point just on its own doesn't make a claim. This map isn't saying anything about London yet. If we put two points on, then that's now enough to make a claim. That this map is representing that Oxford's about, 50, about 60 miles from London and in a certain direction, that it's about west-northwest, west of London. So I think that is a case where the spatial relation between points on the screen there is representing a spatial rela relation between cities in the world. And it's representing partly in virtue of the correspondence between space on the screen and space in the world. I think that's even clearer if we pare it down even further, if we take away the scale bar and the arrow. Right, so now, just with two points, that's not enough to make any claims. But as soon as I've got three points, then uh, this map is making some claims. It's making a claim about for example, the relative distance between um, Oxford, London, and York. It's saying that uh, York is roughly three times as far from Oxford as London is, say. So I think that's a, another case where uh, the structure on the representations, the spatial structure, uh, not a, is representing spatial structure in the world, and it's partly in virtue of the correspondence between space here and space out there that this thing has the representational content it does. Now, you might think I'm cheating because I'm helping myself to non-map type representation. Uh, I'm helping myself to singular terms for labeling these. Uh, so a lot of maps don't have single, singular terms. They just have general terms. Uh, they name property instances, so I can uh, reduce it further uh, and have this map, which is making some claims about there being some cities which are so related spatially, or more familiar maps that uh, are talking about other kinds of property instances. So I guess here uh, the line maybe is, could be representing a river. And then each point of it is saying, um, at this point, there's a uh, section of river oriented thus and so. And then uh, this map is making lots of claims about the relative 
spatial relations between some pubs and different bits of the river and the church. So uh, I don't sorry I don't think it turns on uh, having singular terms in the map, but uh, a map can be used to uh, be a structural representation, and I think it's very plausible that. Uh, not only is it a structural representation, but it's the existence of a correspondence between space on the map and space in the world that gives it its representational <coughs> content. Now, I think maps are a very special case because, well, for lots of reasons. One is that uh, there's a first order of correspondence, right? It's space that stands for space, whereas in uh, the other cases we were looking at, uh, it's, not, it's not the same properties that correspond at either end. So I think that makes maps a, a special case. Uh, also, it might be that maps can represent by omission. So maybe this map represents that there no, are no other pubs in a certain relation uh, to these other, to these existing pubs. So I think none of that is essential to structural representation. Um, nevertheless, I think this brings out the possibility of structural representation and the possibility of the isomorphisms playing this constant content constituting role. Okay, so now I think it's relatively easy to say what it is to be an exploited isomorphism um, by reference to these cases. We've got uh, a structural representation in the rat hippocampus case where I say the coactivation structure is being exploited and in the cartographic map case where the spatial structure is being exploited. So I think there are two aspects to the exploitability of a structural correspondence. One on the side of the representations, another on the side of the world. So on the side of the representations, the relation over them that's in order to be exploitable is going to be something that's of significance to the system that's making use of these representations. So something that could be used to condition behavior on, or something that could be used in computations. So for example, in the brain, neural firing rates are exploitable, and relations between neural firing rates are exploitable, but the color of neurons isn't. There's no known computational mechanism that can take as input the color of the actual phys physical pyramidal cells and so on. So that significantly cuts down the class of relations at the end of the putative representation. It's got to be something that the system can make use of. Of course, that's going to be relative to a system. Um, so it's not an absolute notion. But uh, I still think it's a useful one. On the other side, the <coughs> candidate relations on things in the world, uh, I think, can be very significantly constrained. So for these, uh, so I think when you're talking about language or human thought, um, we could end up representing any kind of structure on things. We can end up representing all kinds of arbitrary and gruesome structures on things in the world. But in these simple systems, uh, the kind of relations between representations in the world that could plausibly enter into a theory of content are going to be about some natural relation on things in the world that could be of significance to the system. Right? That's already a wide class. Right? There's a whole load of natural properties that could turn out to be of significance to the system. But I think that cuts down very dramatically on the sets of arbitrary relations that would otherwise be available. So this is the notion that I then want to put forward as being able to do useful work. An exploitable isomorphism is a one-one map of the sort I showed you at the outset between a set of representations and a set of represented entities in which a natural relation on the representational vehicles to which operations of the system could be sensitive corresponds to a natural relation on the entities represented that is relevant to that system. 
So then this notion is going to come in degrees, I think, quite obviously. So at the end of the representations, the usability of a relation on the representations, it's relative to, this, to a, a class of systems, and it also comes in degrees. Some relations are going to be easier to use than others, more usable. And at the end of the world, that it'll also come in degrees. Some, some relations are more or less natural. Some relations are more or less significant to the organism. So it's not supposed to be an all-or-nothing notion. Another important thing, I, I think, is how widespread the relation on the representations is. So in the case of a map, one of the reasons maps are so, cartographic maps are so powerful is because the single relation of spatial separation extends over a very, very wide range of potential representations, all the points on the map. So that means you can do kind of uniform calculations over the whole map. There might be other cases where there's a relation between representations that just subsists between two or three potential putative representations, and that's going to be less of an exploitable isomorphism, less powerful thing to have. But what I claim is that the existence of these kinds of things is, um, a, is a substantial resource that can be made use of in a theory of content because it's a, it's a useful thing to have. It's a substantial uh, achievement for a system to arrange things so that it has a set of putative representations so organized that some computable structure over those representations corresponds to some natural relation in the world that might be significant to it. So just to give you an analogy, um, uh, using the very liberal notion of isomorphism, uh, that wall, say, is isomorphic to India, to the, in, to the rivers and the mountains and the cities and the towns and the villages of India, under appropriate mapping. But it's no great achievement to have painted that wall in its isomorphic relation to India. And I guess some of you will know it took many years and an awful lot of work to produce something with a much more natural isomorphism. It took the whole survey of India. And then now sitting in the archives of the Royal Geographical Society are the first inked maps where people recorded all of that and put on a single page all of that information that took hundreds of people out in the field surveying for years in order to produce a nice natural isomorphism between the map and things in the field. So for our, our, for our use of artifacts, that's clearly an achievement to do the survey of India and produce a, a map of India. So what I'm claiming is that in the natural case of mental representations, there's a similar, um, it's a similar achievement to produce an exploitable isomorphism between a set of putative representations and some things in the world. OK. Penultimately, al almost the last thing I want to discuss, I want to argue that there's a difference between making use of isomorphisms or making use of correlations um, in the face of a challenge to that idea. And this is the bit I'm least sure about. So I'm sure there'll be lots of objections to all of it, but um, I know there'll be definitely be objections to this bit. So what, the question is, what's the difference between isomorphisms and correlations? So take the map case. Um, uh, not only is there a structure here that corresponds, let's say, to some spatial structure in the world, it could also be that this thing carries information in the sense of changing the probabilities that things exist. So it could be that uh, the fact that there's uh, something with this shape makes it much more likely that there's a river with that shape somewhere, or the spatial relation between this and that portion of the river uh, changes the probability in the sense that uh, had the river been a different shape, then this would be a different shape. And you can see why that might be so. You might 
there might be a mechanism for updating the map as the river changed. So just recently near where I live, the river changed course because of the flood. So let's suppose there's a, and I think someone will come out and survey it and draw a new map with a different course. So in that sense, uh, the fact that the spatial relation between this and this is thus and so correlates with, uh, changes the probability that such that a spatial relation in the world is thus and so. So I'm, I'm not sure that all exploitable isomorphisms carry correlational information in this sense, but clearly a lot of them do. So in the cases that they do, there's a challenge. Uh, are you appealing to something different or are you just appealing to more correlations? Um, is this really a different principle? So uh, I think it, it's a different principle for a number of reasons, and I want to illustrate that by reference to a case in a moment, but let me just say what I think they are. So I think when you're making use of a relation, uh, one thing is that that relation could plausibly run across a whole set of uh, representations in the way that I described earlier, which needn't be the case for correlations. Um, so if, it has a, if a single relation, like space here, has a common significance across a whole range of representations, that enables computations and calculations in a way that uh, just having a whole series of things that correlate doesn't. Uh, in this case, uh, it's not just that there's a relation between internal types that carries information. It uh, carries information about a relation between two entities that are also being represented. So uh, think back to my definition of what it is to be a structural representation. It's to have a relation between representations, represent a relation between things that are represented by those representations. And I think that's an additional thing over and above using a relation to correlate. I'll illustrate that in a minute. But I think the thing that I was talking about in the rat case is also uh, important, which is in the rat case, those place cells, when they're used online, they correlate with where the rat is, but they can also be used offline to calculate. So there's a, a distinction between um, uh, using those representations as transient rem representations of transient matter of fact, like where I am now. And of course, you need that to make use of a cartographic map too. You need some symbol that says, I'm starting from here. Uh, on the one hand, and the other hand, using relations between representations to represent standing, re I mean, relatively stable matters of fact, like uh, the pub is this far from the river and that far from the church. So I think uh, I appeal to the notion of structural isomorphism and structural representation, we can make that distinction. And the bare existence of correlations doesn't do that. So I want to give you a case where I think there is an uh, exploitable isomorphism, but it's not a structural representation, to try and illustrate that. And this is another empirical case. This is uh, ant navigation. Right? So this is a desert ant that goes foraging out in the desert. This is a recording of a, a track that it follows. The black track is the uh, the black unbroken track is where it goes out when it's foraging for food, starting from its nest here. And then the dotted line is the track that it follows after it's found food and it's coming back to its nest, having been satisfied. And you can see that it follows quite a, a random kind of exploratory course as it's looking for food. But then when it finds some, it makes what you might call a beeline, a relatively direct line back to its nest. And in a whole series of experiments, people have demonstrated that this isn't through memorizing a landmark or uh, some, other, some other way of just visually or um, uh, using other cues to tell where the nest is. So for example, if as soon as it's found the food, you transport it to a different location, then it will follow exactly this track to where its nest should have been and then start searching. So there's pretty strong evidence that it's integrating over its path in some way, 
so that it knows how far and in what direction to go back to get back to its nest. It's doing path integration. And what I want to argue is that there's a, uh, a plausible account about how the ant does path integration is that it uses a relation between some of its neurons in order to keep track of where it is, but that that's not a case of structural representation. It's not a case of exploiting an isomorphism. So here's the kind of plausible, partly scientifically informed account. So it's known that uh, this ability depends on detecting the polarization of light. So using the polarization of light from the sun, uh, and you can tell whether you're pointing at the sun or pointing sideways to the sun. So then it's relatively easy to have neurons that are configured uh, so that they fire based on your positioning in relation to the sun. So suppose you were at this angle here, then this neuron would fire a lot because you're mostly pointing towards the sun, and this one would fire a little bit because you're pointing a bit of, away from the sun. So let's just suppose we're, this is stylizing the case, but I think it's reasonably empirically plausible. Let's suppose there are just two classes of neurons. One fires most when you're pointing at the sun and least when you're pointing 180 degrees away from the sun and intermediate values for intermediate directions and another set that does um, directions orthogonal to the sun. So this is most when you're pointing to the east of the sun, say, and then least when you're pointing to the west of the sun and so on. So you've just got those two registers. So wherever you are, you've got those. Uh, um, it's kind of an online record of, your, uh, of the ant's direction. Now, there's some evidence that what it does in path integration is it takes that kind of information and it um, multiplies it by, it convolves it with its uh, current speed of movement in order to add up how far it's moved in each direction. So it, it's doing something that's counting its paces. And there's um, kind of intriguing experiments where you make its legs longer or you make its legs shorter. And, uh, and it gets it wrong by the, by the, the proportional amount. So takes these kinds of inputs and um, multiplies it by how many steps it's taken and then has some kind of internal register of how many steps it's taken in each component direction. And you can see that would be relatively easy to do computationally if you just multiply the current firing of these two types of neurons with uh, uh, a measure of how fast you're moving in terms of steps. So let's suppose that there are four what I've called direction accumulator cells. This accumulates movement in the direction of the sun, this one accumulates movement uh, 180 degrees from the sun, and these do the other two directions. So we've just got these four cell types. Now if you've got those, it, it's relatively easy to get yourself back to your home nest. And all you've got to do is arrange things so that um, these two are firing at the same rate, and these two are firing at the same rate. And they don't have to go down to zero, because you've got, probably gone back and forth quite a bit, but you get them down to the same level, and you'll have got back to where you started. So this mechanism that adds things up on the way out can also add things up on the way back until you get to where home is. That doesn't yet tell you how to go in a straight line for home, but also that's relatively straightforward. You just uh, compare the difference between this and that, and the difference between this and that, and move in a way that gets, them, gets those differences going down at the same rate, roughly. I don't want to go into all the details, but it should be pretty intuitive that this kind of information would be enough to work out the best way home, and that it's making use of a relation between these two classes of neurons. So it's, the important thing is the difference between uh, the firing rate of neuron C and the firing rate of neuron A, and correlatively the distant difference here. So that looks like it's a candidate for an uh, exploited isomorphism. There's an isomorphism between the difference between these things 
and the spatial distance in the direction of the sun away from the nest. Right? So that's the kind of thing that I've argued could be exploited. But in this case, I don't think it is being exploited. I think that difference is just being exploited for the fact that it correlates with how far the ant is from its nest. It's just being exploited as a correlate. Now, there are lots of cases in the brain where there's just uh, a single thing, a single state that correlates, but there's lots of cases too where it's the relations between two neural firings, say, that's the correlate, and I think this is one of those cases. Why isn't it the case of structural representation? Well, because we don't have any reason to think that the neurons individually here are representing, so there's not a representation of how much I've moved in the direction of the sun and how much I've moved away from the sun. When these things condition behavior, they always do so in concert. So the, the putative representation that behavior is conditioned on is the complex of the two of them, or actually more likely the four of them. And behavior is conditioned on the relations between all of them. So I think this is a case where although there is an exploitable isomorphism, there's not, it's not being used such that there's a relation between representations that's being used to represent a relation between the entities represented. I think there's a lot of cases of um, neural processing that are like that. So I guess this idea of um, visual processing put forward by David Marr will be relatively familiar. So that's a hierarchical account of visual processing where you um, extract some features like blobs and edges. And then uh, so you've got cells that correlate with those kinds of features. And then you use those to extract slightly more abstract features on the basis of conjunctions and disjunctions of these things and so on. And here's a neural network model that works in a similar way. So there's correlations here, and then another layer of units that correlate with those things in certain conjunctions, and so on. So in those cases, the way the system works surely does depend on uh, relative firing rates, on relations between these various units, or in these cases, on relations between neurons. Uh, but I, again, I don't think it's a case where those relations are being used to represent relations between entities in the world. They're all just being used for the correlational information they carry, and correlational information is being hierarchically uh, reorganized. So I want to use that to illustrate the idea that there is a difference between the bare existence of correlations, which are clearly there in some cases of structural representations, and there are the use of an isomorphism, of an exploitable isomorphism, uh, for its correspondence to things in the world. Okay, finally, and very briefly, I want to uh, say why I'm talking about structural correspondence and not isomorphism, and that's because I think the notion of isomorphism is too strict in various ways to do the work that we need it to do. Um, so in many cases, it's something that's more approximate than a mathematical isomorphism that's the useful thing. Uh, so let me just uh, give a sketch of that with relation to this map. Uh, so maybe... Um, if we took this map to represent London, Oxford, and York, then it would be pretty accurate for um, London, Oxford. It gets it right within one mile, say, and reasonably accurate for Oxford, York. Maybe it gets it right within 10 miles, but less accurate for London, York. Um, so we could measure the accuracy of this as a putative representation of, of those spatial facts um, and could add up uh, how accurate or inaccurate each of the relations it represents are. If, on the other hand, we took it as a representation of uh, London, Oxford, and Leeds, then it would have a different accuracy measure. Maybe it may it's more accurate as a map of London, Oxford, and Leeds. 
So the idea of an approximate isomorphism is that um, uh, there's uh, an exact isomorphism that gives a content for that set of representations, and then there's a measure of how closely the world matches that uh, set of contents. And in this case where there's continuous values, it's relatively easy to see that there's a measure. In cases where you're representing discrete things, it'd be a bit harder to produce a measure, but there's still going to be a notion of accuracy. So that's uh, playing with allowing to vary what the representational significance of the elements is, but you could also uh, allow to vary the representational significance of the relation. So for each way of mapping space to space, there'll be a varying accuracy of this as a potential map. And I think just as in the case of correlations, there's no constraint that a set of representations represents the thing that it's a most accurate map of. So there are all these approximate isomorphisms. They all exist all at once. Um, and if this set of representations was a representation of this thing, it would be this accurate. Uh, if it was a set of representations of a different set of things, it would be more or less accurate. And the accuracy that it would have if it represented thus and so is another variable. So over and above the things that I talked about, how exploitable the isomorphism is, is how accurate it would be. So the picture I'm thinking of is uh, this as being a, a resource that a theory of content can appeal to. Uh, and how useful an isomorphism is for a system will depend partly on accuracy and partly on exploitability. Okay, so I just want to finish by uh, summing up. So what I've tried to argue is that the intuitive idea that as with maps, uh, with mental representations, structure can be the basis of representational content, that intuitive idea can be vindicated even in the, in the face of the long-standing objection that isomorphisms are just too liberal. And you can do that by uh, cutting down the class of candidate isomorphism so those that are exploitable in the sense that I've tried to bring out by ref reference to these cases. So the claim that I want to make that is that it's a substantive cognitive achievement to arrange things so that a set of putative representations stands in exploitable relation to some set of things in the world uh, and a relation over them that matters to the organism. And the existence of those exploitable relations can then plausibly be an ingredient in an account of what makes it the case that those representations have the content they do. So I'm very look, much looking forward to your questions, but I know we get a chance for tea first, so I'll stop there.